Adrian Pocabelli. And we have a industrial metals episode, which are blazing. They are blazing. We have nickel at the highest price since 2014. We have copper at eight-year highs. Silver demand forecast to rise 11% in 2021. Platinum price at six-year high. So very interesting times in the commodities market. And, you know, it's almost the everything market, whatever you're in, digital assets, real estate, commodities, stocks, gosh, even bonds. I don't know what's going on with the bond market. I don't know if you'd call that a high. People say it's like the biggest bubble ever. So is it the biggest bubble ever? You know, I guess if everything goes up, then maybe it all kind of cancels itself out. I don't know, but I'll tell you what I do know is I sure hope you own assets. I sure hope you own something that is going up because if you're being left behind in this market where even in these SPACs that are multiplying, doing their Xs, it's a little bit of an academic dry read, this bubbles and busts. It should be more exciting considering the content. There's actually a 19th century book by Charles McKay, which I actually recommend a little bit more. Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds. That is an exciting account of, and I believe he had both the Mississippi bubble, which was John Law in France, and the South Sea bubble, which happened maybe like six months or a year later, talking around 1720. Fascinating stuff. And what's great about actually Charles McKay's book, again, from the 19th century, is he also has a tulip mania in there. And so, yeah, you just have to wonder where this is all taking us. And when the everything bubble crashes, should it crash, where does that leave us? And we know what the Bitcoiners will say. We know what they'll say. Anyway, we've got an awesome episode here for you. Uh, We have this great, really interesting panel that I did a couple of weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago now, for CIM Sudbury. Thank you again, CIM, for inviting me. I've never actually done anything like that. Totally appreciate it. And it was a really good discussion. I got pretty feisty at the end, too, as far as all this resource sovereignty, as George Salamis, who I keep going back to, calls it. And uh, sort of put them on the spot a little bit, a couple of these CEOs. But, you know, I'm not a gotcha type journalist, and I ask some tough questions because I think they can answer them. So there are treats for those that stay to the end. So I hope you enjoy that. And again, I think there's going to be something there for policymakers. Frankly, like if you're like a government policymaker and you're involved in mining, I think you should listen to this. Not for my pertinent questions, but to really get a boots-on-the-ground idea of what's going on in that kind of low-grade nickel deposit in Sudbury. I mean, does it get any more Canadian than that, right? So that is happening for this episode. So I'm excited to present that to you. I was just going over the edits, and I was like, this is pretty interesting for low-grade nickel deposits. I think the CIM Sudbury did an excellent job there. We have a couple of major events happening. We have the Global Mining Symposium, which starts in a week, week today, February 23rd and 24th. Go to northernminer.com slash GMS 2021 and click on the beautiful red register button, and that'll take you to a form 
where you can register for the event. There is still time. Register for free. And we also have some great speakers lined up. We have Paul Brink, who is president and CEO of Franco Nevada. We have Daniela Dimitrov, who is a partner at Sprott. Catherine Signak, who is corporate director at Cameco, Oceana Gold, and Women in Mining. John McCluskey, president and CEO of Alamos Gold. And Margot Naughty, president of Elephant Capital. And many, many more. We actually have dozens of speakers here. Andrew Cheadle, Louise Pierce, Hugh Roberts, Elizabeth Friel, Michael F. White, president and CEO of IBK Capital, which is a pillar of the Toronto investment community. And there are just dozens more. Thanks to our gold sponsors, Amex Exploration and Quia Silver. And you can go to that page, northernminer.com slash GMS2021, and you can take a look at everything that's going on there. And again, registration is free. So that is coming up in a week. So don't delay. Also on February 18th, which is two days from now, Northern Miner Group publisher Anthony Vaccaro is going to be moderating a panel on ESG for exploration. And this is put on by Invest Yukon. And it's part of this pre-PDAC thought leaders series. And this is taking place February 18th at 1 p.m. Eastern time. And it features Tara Christie, president and CEO of Banyan Gold, Brandon McDonald, CEO of Fireweed Zinc, and Matt Turner, president and CEO of Rockhaven Resources. So that is happening. That is Thursday. And of course, don't forget, we have the world's biggest mining convention, and that starts Monday, March 8th to Thursday, March 11th. I thought it was earlier this year. Maybe they changed that, but it was probably just me. So there's lots of time actually to register there. So if you just go to pdac.ca, you can hit the register today. So if you're into mining, this is your time. It's your time to shine. It's time to meet people through Zoom. So put on a nice shirt and uh, get your background sorted out and and do what you can. So with that, if you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner. You can find us on Instagram at The Northern Miner. You can find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. And with that, let's turn to the news. And turning to the website, a couple of stories from mining.com here that I wanted to hit. One was just an out-of-the-ordinary story, a bit of a tech story. Before we get into more of the metal stories, graphene nano-origami creates tiniest microchips ever. And I haven't seen this anywhere else. And it's kind of great that a mining publication has it. The tiniest microchips yet can be made from graphene and other 2D materials. Just think of what that means, a 2D material using a form of nano-origami physicists at the University of Sussex have found. This is the first time this research has been done, and it is covered in a paper published in the ACS Nano Journal. The researchers believe that this next generation of microchips could lead to computers and phones running thousands of times faster. By creating kinks in the structure of graphene, Researchers at the University of Sussex have made the nanomaterials behave like a transistor and have shown that when a strip of graphene is crinkled in this way, it can behave like a microchip, which is around 100 times smaller than conventional microchips. Quote, we're mechanically creating kinks in a layer of graphene. It's a bit like nano-origami, said Professor Alan Dalton at the School of Mathematical and Physical Sciences at the University of Sussex. 
He continues, using these nanomaterials will make our computer chips smaller and faster. It is absolutely critical that this happens as computer manufacturers are now at the limit of what they can do with traditional semiconducting technology. Ultimately, this will make our computers and phones thousands of times faster in the future. You know, they do talk about graphite and graphene. This has been talked about for about a decade now, maybe longer. Looks like it's finally being realized, which is quite astonishing. And finally here, this kind of technology called Strain-tronics, using nanomaterials as opposed to electronics, allows space for more chips inside any device. Everything we want to do with computers to speed them up can be done by crinkling graphene like this. Pretty interesting stuff. And so this was taken from a paper on the structural defects modulate electronic and nanomechanical properties of 2D materials, which was published on ACS Nano. Good job, guys, finding that story, because that is pretty interesting. Sometimes the most interesting stories actually don't make the world news. Now, turning over to our metal price situation here, copper prices surged to new eight-year high on supply worries. This is by Mining.com staff. And yeah, the copper price resumed its rally on Monday, reaching the highest level since 2012 on concerns over a market deficit driven by tight supply and strong demand for the industrial metal. There's been speculation that more factories in China, the world's top consumer, have remained open during the Lunar New Year holiday, keeping copper demand elevated during what is normally considered a slow period of industrial activities. I wonder what they're up to over there. I wonder why they would keep things going. Copper contracts advanced 1% to $3.82 per pound, about $8,436 per ton. And the base metal is on track for its 11th straight monthly gain and is up more than 8.8% since the beginning of the year. Gosh, it seemed like so much more. And now turning to nickel, main focus of this program, nickel price at the highest since 2014 amid growing EV battery demand. So they've been projecting for years that the EV batteries were going to create a shortage. I guess that time has arrived. Nickel has quietly been going neck and neck with copper since the start of the base metals rally in mid-2020 and is now approaching a key level that analysts believe could spur investment in new supply. Three-month nickel on the LME reached a new six-year high Thursday at $18,534 per ton. The metal has been putting in strong performances despite expectations of demand slowdown due to the Chinese New Year holiday up over 11% since the turn of the calendar year. It sounds like China is keeping their factories going. Here's a speculation for you. So if you're China trying to displace the U.S. as the world's number one economy, are you going to let a little New Year's celebration slow you down when the West is still reeling from coronavirus and lockdowns? Are you just going to give up a week or two when you are getting basically two weeks bonus on your competitors? Just a theory, just a theory. Year on year, the contract has gained 30% amid rising demand expectations pertaining to the electric vehicle battery sector, as well as strengthening macroeconomic conditions that led to higher consumption of raw materials for making stainless steel. Market participants have been eyeing the $20,000 a ton threshold for nickel as critical to unlocking fresh supply. So, and again, it was at $18,534. And this story was written February 11th, so it's a few days ago. And the supply is running short. While the nickel market is expected to be in a surplus of around 75,000 tons this year, supply would still need to increase by 4% to keep pace with demand, according to Nornickel, the world's number two producer. 
And finally, according to the report prepared by Roskill on behalf of the European Commission, global nickel demand from the EV sector is expected to reach 2.6 million tons in 2040, a significant increase from the 92,000 tons last year. Quote, automotive electrification is expected to represent the single largest growth sector for nickel demand over the next 20 years, the report says. Okay, so regardless, big things happening in nickel, and just an addendum to that, nickel price Indonesia confirms Tesla talks. So Tesla is talking to Indonesia about nickel. Now, I always thought there were kind of ESG issues associated with nickel, and I think that comes up. It's kind of the nickel episode we have here for you. So let's just read a couple of paragraphs from this Elon Musk story. An Indonesian official has confirmed earlier reports that the government will begin early talks with Tesla over a potential investment in the development of lithium-ion batteries in the country. News of an investment proposal was first revealed by the country's deputy head for investment and mining coordination, Septian Hario Sito. According to commodity research analysts at Roskill, this development potentially represents another boost for Indonesia, the world's biggest nickel producer. So Elon Musk going to Indonesia, I wonder, because again... I mean, don't quote me on this, but listen for it in the panel, because I think Indonesia gets mildly criticized as kind of not being the most ESG-friendly uh, nickel. If, I, if memory serves, it takes a lot of coal to make that nickel. And so there's Elon Musk talking to Indonesia. Now, I think Elon Musk must be aware of this, obviously. So does that show that there's a bit of a desperation to secure nickel supply? More speculation. Okay, continuing on. Global silver demand forecast to rise 11% in 2021, according to the Silver Institute, this on the northernminer.com, against an improving macroeconomic backdrop. The main segments of silver demand are expected to rise this year. Led by industrial and physical silver investment, global silver demand is expected to achieve an eight-year high of 1.025 billion ounces in 2021. Physical investment, which covers silver bullion, coin, and bar purchases, is expected to achieve a six-year high in 2021 of 257 million ounces, as investors continue to add silver to their investment holdings. However, should the global economic recovery from the pandemic prove to be much slower than expected, this could weigh on base metal prices. This in turn could encourage investors to reduce their exposure to silver. On balance though, the Silver Institute remains especially optimistic about silver's prospect for this year. And then skipping down a little bit to the forecast, what everybody wants to hear, Going forward, the outlook for the silver price in 2021 remains exceptionally encouraging, with the annual average price projected to rise by 46% to a seven-year high of $30. Given silver's smaller market and the increased price volatility this can generate, we expect silver to comfortably outperform gold this year. Additionally, the gold-silver ratio is expected to fall from an annual average of 86 in 2020 to around 68 in 2021. This will be even more noteworthy given that the ratio touched a record daily high of 127 in March 2020. So things looking pretty bullish for silver. You can read the whole thing on the northernminer.com. That's by the Silver Institute. And global silver demand forecast rise by 11% in 2021. And finally... We have a new commentary from Jeffrey Christian, one of our favorites on the show. And this commentary is called Aspiration versus Reality, What Lies in Store for Platinum Group Metals Over the Next Decade. The rise in electric vehicle market share in the car industry may be accelerating, as witnessed in the wave of announcements from Volvo, Volkswagen, General Motors, Ford, Nissan, Toyota, Honda, and a host of Chinese automakers. But there always has been and always will be a tremendous mountain of marketing hype 
by automakers and others about the march to EV and fuel cells. Yeah, if you want to hear Jeffrey Christian go more in detail on this, you can hear him on my interview I did with him. God, that must be four, about four months ago now. And yeah, I think we can count Jeffrey Christian as a skeptic. When I wrote World Guide to Battery-Powered Road Transportation in 1979, many people and companies involved in EV research and development, including many auto companies, projected half a million EVs on the road by 1988. The world reached that level in 2014. The California government wanted 10% of the vehicles sold in California to be, quote, zero emission vehicles by 1988, subtly ignoring that the state got its electricity from state coal-fired power plants back then. Fuel cell vehicles have been 10 years from massive production and platinum requirements since the 1960s, when GM and other auto companies were working on prototypes. So I guess Jeffrey Christian has seen this story before, and I'm going to cut to the chase here. Even if EVs or some other technologies supplant traditional automobiles entirely, or almost entirely, the outlook for platinum prices still looks promising over the next 10 years. The cliff is somewhere between 2030, it seems. The cliff, uh, suggesting it might drop. However, as future trends in auto propulsion technology become clearer as the current decade progresses, financial markets will price future demand trends into prices in advance of the actual demand developments. For now and the next few years, this is in the future. Platinum prices should be expected to rise, perhaps sharply, while palladium and rhodium prices appear destined to remain high. This is because the shorter-term trends in the auto industry are positive for platinum, palladium, and rhodium demand. The overall number of vehicles being built continues to rise in the long run, despite periodic declines due to recessions in 2008 and again in 2020. Okay, so you can read the whole thing. There's actually quite a lot more here. But yeah, I think we can count Jeffrey Christian as a skeptic on the battery metals, and therefore he sees a rosy future for the PGMs in our traditional gas-powered vehicles. Endlessly the provocateur, Jeffrey Christian, get his full detailed assessment on thenorthernminer.com. Thank you, Jeffrey, for contributing. And with that, now let's turn to metal prices and let's, let's quantify all this data. Turning to metal prices, we have some pretty striking numbers here on February 16th. And special thanks to our friends at mining.com slash markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. And if we look at gold, we're trading at $1,798.57 per ounce. That is $45 lower than last week's quote. Is this the bottom of the, who knows? Like, it seems like a capitulation in the gold market, but continuing on, silver is at $27.23. That is 38 cents lower than last week. Platinum is at $1,272.36 per ounce, continuing its march higher, and that is $89 higher than last week's quote and palladium is trading at $2,392.71. That is $72 higher 
in last week's quote. And turning to our industrial metals, copper is trading at $3.82 per pound. That is $0.22 cents higher than last week. Aluminum is trading $0.03 cents higher at $0.94 cents per pound. Lead is trading $0.04 cents higher at $0.96 cents per pound. Nickel is trading $0.30 cents higher at $8.44 per pound. Uh, that is an all-time high from when we started registering these prices a year and a half ago, as that article we referenced earlier said. And here's the real showstopper. Tin is at $13.11 per pound. That is $2.33 higher than last week's quote. So tin, like, I mean, I imagine a chart of this, it's starting to go it kind of sounds ridiculous that tin is going parabolic, but tin is off to the moon, as they say. Cobalt also higher. You can almost hear the angst in my voice as these prices go higher. 82 cents higher at $21.32 per pound, and zinc is 8 cents higher at $1.28 per pound. So what do we have? Gold and silver kind of blah. Everything else is heading to the moon. So those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have CIM Sudbury's panel discussion, development of low-grade nickel deposits in the battery electric age. On the panel is Mark Selby, Chairman, CEO, and Director of Canada Nickel, Jonna Mwinonen, President of Dumont Nickel, Wes Carson, Vice President, Mining Operations for Wheat and Precious Metals, and Roberta Pedler-Hobbs, who is a partner at ERM. If you want to read more about them, uh, you can read in, I'll put uh, their bio in the show notes, and it was moderated by yours truly, CIM Sudbury. Thank you for the invitation. You guys did a fabulous job making me feel welcome. And thanks for letting us play the audio. So with that, I really hope you enjoy this and we'll see you on the other side. Big thank you to all of our uh, volunteers for coming to be part of the panel. This is the fourth consecutive panel we've held in January uh, over the last couple of years, and it's been an astounding success. Um, always really engaging, interesting dialogue between our panelists on a bunch of ranging subjects that are particular interest to the Sudbury Basin, uh, where uh, a lot of our attendees are from, um, and tonight's no exception. So um, a lot of people in Sudbury are hearing the news about some of the uh, lower-grade nickel deposits occurring outside of the basin, um, and so we have some particular experts that can speak on this subject. And really where these projects are poised to, to fuel to fuel the world. So um, without further ado, I'm gonna introduce our moderator who will then kick us off and introduce some of the panelists. So um, Adrian Pocabelli uh, is an editor and artist based out of Berlin, Germany. So Adrian uh, has been working with the Northern Miner since 2012. He also has just started a solo art show at the Gallery Fata Morgana in Berlin's Mike district. Originally hailing from Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, and first became interested in junior mining after subscribed to the Dines Letter. Uh, currently hosts the Northern Miner Podcast, which is a weekly podcast on the mining industry. So welcome, Adrian. Thank you for uh, being a moderator for this event, and uh, I'll let you take it away. Great. Thank you, Colin. And it's uh, it's an honor to be asked to do this uh, this event. I've never been asked uh, to do this kind of 
moderation for something, you know, CIM Sudbury, but it's a very interesting issue. I, I think this whole, uh, George Salamis was on a recent podcast and he talked about resource sovereignty and this idea of sort of Canada taking a bit more, for lack of a better word, aggressive of an approach with how it deals with its resources and growing kind of a homegrown solution because we have a lot of what the world needs. And so he he saw a huge opportunity and I see a huge opportunity here. So I'm excited to take part in this. Again, it's an issue close to my heart. So I'm gonna introduce everybody here. And so joining us tonight, we have four people. Uh, Jonna Muinonen, who is president of Dumont Nickel and Magneto Investments. And we have Mark Selby, chairman, CEO, and director of Canada Nickel Company. And we have Roberta Pedler Hobbs, who is a partner with ERM, which stands for Environmental Resources Management. And we also have Wes Carson, who is Vice President, Mining Operations for Wheaton Precious Metals. So we have a great group of people here. And there's, there's a great opportunity here. And there's some complexity to this issue. So we're going to try and parse it out and make it as simple and as clear as possible for everybody. Uh, but there seems to be a big opportunity with these low-grade nickel deposits that are, and, and again, the name of this uh, the name of this panel is Development of Low-Grade Nickel Deposits in the Battery Electric Age. So, Jonna, would you like to start us out? And how do you see this opportunity? What's going on? Help us out. Why, why should we care about this? <laughs> um, hi, everybody. My name is Jonna Moynihan. I uh, currently work for Dumont Nickel. Um, I've been with the Dumont Nickel project since 2010. Um, and before that, I was with uh, Valet Inco. Um, I spent most of my time up in Thompson, Manitoba, um, but also worked down in Toronto, both at the research lab and in the uh, business development group. I uh, currently live in Sudbury, so I'm local, and I uh, just wanted to say hello to everybody. I see a few very familiar names on the uh, on the ticker there before we started. Um, in terms of you know why I think we should think about this is you know there's going to be a lot of nickel uh, demand coming. You know, right now, um, for all new nickel, 70% of all new nickel goes into stainless steel, and batteries represent about 3% of the nickel market. However, you know, if you look at the future predictions about where electric vehicles will be in 2025 and 2030, um, that is increasing exponentially to the point where if you look at, you know, just Tesla alone and what they said they're going to achieve by 2030, um, they could need another million, million and a half tons of nickel per year. Um, and that is, you know, equivalent to 75% of today's production. So, you know, that's why I think we should care. I think we should be interested in what that means to us um, as, as nickel producers, nickel developers um, in both the Sudbury Basin and, and, other, and elsewhere in Canada. Thank you. And uh, Mark Selby, would you like to do the same thing and introduce yourself first and tell sure. us why we, this is an important issue and however you want to take it? Okay, sure. Um, Mark Selby. Uh, Chair and CEO of Canada Nickel, uh, with the Crawford Discovery just north of Timmins. Uh, no, I mean, you know, building on Jonna's comments, you know, I think that Tesla Battery Day announcement and the fact that when you translate that into nickel use, you're looking for a million, a million and a half tons per year. Uh, the, you know, the last uh, high-grade nickel sulfide discovery, when most people, when they think of nickel, they think of multi-percent nickel uh, deposits, but the last million-ton high-grade nickel sulfide discovery was Voises Bay in 1992. 
So it's been 28 years since we found a deposit big enough to meet just one year worth of Tesla's nickel consumption. So if we as an industry are going to hope to be able to meet the demand not only from Tesla, but the entire EV sector um, and the requirements, which are, again, is, are happening in Elon Musk time, not in mining company time, um, you know, we're going to squander a, a massive opportunity here. So when you step back and say, okay, you know, what, you know, how can I deliver large volumes of material and be able to ramp up that you know volume to keep pace with an industry that's going at a very large clip you're not going to be doing that from underground deposits that are you know 4000 feet underground you know it it has to be open pitable deposits and you know the open pitable deposits that are available today are large low grade deposits and so you know the you know the timing uh, I think couldn't be better you know the source of nickel other than laterites in Indonesia because uh, again the entire Western auto industry is not going to depend their entire business on on Chinese controlled parts of uh, Indonesia delivering the nickel they need um, you know really uh, low grade sulfide deposits you know, fill a massive gap in the market and I think the you know timing for them is, is going to be very well 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 suited. Excellent, thank you. And and Roberta, could you chime in and introduce yourself and tell us your the view from your perch and on this whole issue? I assume you've thought about the nickel issue and in Sudbury and tell us what's how you see things. Sure. So um, Roberta, I'm with ERM. We're a global uh, private sustainability consultancy. Uh, basically, we, we our whole business is sustainability, and we we help. Uh, leading companies shape a sustainable future. So uh, whether that be from environmental, uh, social um, governance aspects, and we, we work across sectors. So mining is my my sector, my focus. I spent my career in mining. I am uh, based in Sudbury. I so most people on this call probably know where that is. Um, I've spent uh, my career working both for industry directly as well as I worked for the Ministry of Northern Development and Mines uh, for a few years as a mine rehabilitation specialist. And, uh, and then I decided to join ERM um, about four years ago. So and w one of the reasons really is because of the focus and the growing need to develop projects sustainably, not just because uh, it's a thing to do. I think uh, people, um, you know, slowly over time have begun to recognize that uh, the environmental aspects of their projects are important. But now I think it's really this, this increasing demand to develop projects that encompass um, the social needs and the economic needs of the region. So I see these nickel deposits as as an opportunity really for Ontario or Quebec and for Canada really to get ahead and to to really um, create shared value from these deposits. But that will really be up to up to the two two companies we have on the panel here to to decide right that sustainability is important to them and do they want to differentiate themselves that way. So. So that, those are my thoughts for now. Okay, thank you. That was excellent. And uh, Wes, uh, you're with Wheaton Precious Metals. What's the nickel opportunity? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I'm Wes Carson, Vice President of Mining Operations with Wheaton Precious Metals. So I've, I've been with Wheaton for about four years now. Prior to that, did uh, kind of 20 years in, in the kind of operations or, or project development side of the business, kind of both with big companies and small companies. And, and uh, 
for those of you who don't know, Wheaton is is really kind of a, a mine finance company. We're about a thirty billion dollar market cap company with forty employees, which is a, kind of a, an interesting model overall. So it seems to work fairly well. But uh, really, I would say the the uh, the focus on on nickel for us is is really in the byproducts and how we can actually help um, companies move some of these projects forward. And and really, if you look at streaming as an alternative form of financing, um, it, it doesn't have the, the dilutive factors that you have in equity or or the uh, kind of the constraints that you get with debt covenants and, and that around it. So and and really what we try to do as a company is really partner with um, companies that are developing projects or operating projects in order to actually make them better. And then really we get a, a higher value for the precious metals than, than a, a company, a nickel company would be able to get themselves. So we can actually afford to add value to the project in that way. We also do a lot of things to focus on um, sustainability. We have quite a large CSR fund that we deploy every year. Um, Valley is our, our largest partner. They, they make up almost 40% of, of the, uh, the revenue that we, we take in, a large part of that from their Slobo mine down in, uh, in Brazil. But we also are partnered on the, uh, the, all, all of the Valley mines in the Sudbury Basin, as well as Boise's Bay, which is an interesting one because that one's actually a cobalt stream. So we've been... Uh, learning quite a bit about the whole battery market and, and uh, the impact that, that nickel and cobalt have on, on that and, and the shortage of, of both metals over the last number of years. We, we did that uh, stream back in 2018 and it's actually just kicked off here in, in on January 1st this year. So some, some pretty fascinating developments sort of in, in the EV market overall and, and just in the demand for these battery metals. Indeed, the uh, nickel price has been going up pretty dramatically. We've been tracking it on the podcast on a weekly basis and yeah, it's $8.19, so it's risen pretty dramatically. Jonna, turning back to you and your project, has it been hard for people to, in a sense, is it hard to get people to take seriously a low-grade nickel project? Like, what's your experience as far as <laughs> trying to sell that project? Is it a hard thing to yeah. do? You need high-grade for anybody to take it seriously? Or, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think, uh, think low-grade nickel projects... Um, are, are definitely not the nickel industry norm. Um, there's a couple that you can point to that are in production today, um, but, but they're not the norm, unlike say low-grade copper projects. So, you know, I, de I do definitely think that that's been a challenge. I mean, I've been working on this for 10 years now. Um, most of that time has been spent in a down market nickel cycle. I mean, we haven't really had, uh, you know, nickel prices gone up and down, but the investment side of the, of the equation really has been, been absent. Um, in nickel. There hasn't, you know, you can't go out there and see, you know, a wave of people wanting to invest in nickel uh, up until, say, the last year, where we're starting to, you know, see more more news, more people, you know, you go on the news, you can Google nickel, and people now know it's in batteries, which was, you know, a huge learning curve when we first started talking about nickel and batteries two years ago. Um, I remember, you know, sit, literally sitting down and, and explaining to the Quebec government that there's more than lithium and graphite in a lithium-ion battery. Uh, so that, you know, that that sort of education piece has definitely come along and people now, with the exception of every so often you see an article that still only talks about cobalt and lithium, uh, for the most part you now see people talking about nickel um, and how you know all, generally what we've seen in the battery chemistry is the nickel continues to increase. Um, but yeah, I mean, for sure, a low, you know, low grade, we have a, you know, Dumont has a 0.3% nickel deposit. Um, so definitely it's on the lower end of things, no question about it. But when you look at the value per ton um, a value in one ton of ore and compare it against a copper porphyry in South America, um, it's on a very similar scale. 
And so if you can do it down in South America, it's say, let's look at Constantia, which has a 0.4% copper ore body, um, you know, and copper is what, 350 a pound. Um, and compare that to Dumont at 0.3, where, you know, nickel's $8 a pound. Um, you can start to see some similarities into dollars per ton and just looking at it from that basis. And I think that the, as an industry, you know, we really need to get over the fact that, you know, historically a nickel mine is 1% to 2% nickel and we go in and mine it. Um, I just think it needs to be looked at from a very different mindset uh, when you're comparing what Dumont could look like versus, say, a more traditional Sudbury, Thompson, Boise's Bay nickel deposit. Okay, very good. And and to state the obvious in a sense, so for you, this is an economic deposit that you have, and it's in Quebec as well, right? Yeah, so I mean, a little bit about the about Dumont, just for people who aren't aware, because I don't know how um, how many people are actually aware of some of the details on Dumont. Um, you know, Dumont, it, it is in Quebec. Uh, it's located in the Abitibi region. It's about an hour north of Rouen or Val d'Or. Um, so we're right, we're right in the middle of that sort of regional mining center within the Abitibi that has lots of experience building this scale of project. Um, in terms of scale, we're looking at a two-phased approach. The first phase would produce about uh, 33,000 tons of nickel annually, and then expanding by year eight to produce 50,000 tons of nickel annually. So it is a big project. It's going to generate a lot of nickel. And Mark referenced that earlier in terms of scale. You know, these are the sorts of, of projects that are going to start to answer that call from, from the electric vehicle uh, manufacturers. Uh, Dumont has a proven and probable reserve of one, over a billion tons of ore uh, with 2.8 million tons of contained nickel. In terms of where we are in the study, uh, we completed the first feasibility on Dumont back in 2013. Uh, we updated that feasibility in 2019 in part um, to look at having a fresh study for this new, you know, this wave of interest in nickel, knowing it was coming. Um, and second, we, we looked at some different options around our tails and around, um, around what the sort of the downstream is going to look like. Um, and, and then in that time period, we were also able to get both federally and provincially permitted, as well as we have a, an IBA signed with the local First Nation. So essentially, you know, in terms of where we are, Really, at this point, um, it's about funding and it's about being able to put together, you know, the billion dollars to build the to build the project. OK, great. And we're going to get into that a little later. This what I find to be a super interesting issue, actually, this whole funding issue. Uh, Mark, would you like to also just sort of tell us a bit about your project? And I assume you also think this is an economic deposit. Uh, how big of an opportunity is your project? Yeah, so yeah, John and I were joined at the hip uh, at uh, Dumont for nine years. So um, you know, we we I know all too well the uh, the pain of trying to sell project. Um, yeah, so we're basically on the same structure, um, about 200 miles west, uh, just north of Timmins. Um, so again, one of the big advantages of where both projects is we're sitting in the midst of all the infrastructure that you need. We're not in a remote location where you have to spend a billion dollars to build the infrastructure to then build, spend a billion dollars to build the mine. Because of the experience with Dumont, we've been able to advance this project very quickly. So, you know, we have uh, 3 million tons contained nickel. You know, we're advancing towards a PEA that'll be done by the, the end of this year. Uh, we just announced uh, an MOU with Glencore uh, to look at using the Kid Creek to be able to start at a much smaller capex, much you know, much more quickly uh, than going to the the big project, which will be a, a massive de-risking. Uh, but the goal here is to have a feasibility study done by year end. Um, it'll be similar scale, you know, to Dumont, um, you know, in terms of starting, you know, somewhere around producing 30,000, 20, 30,000 tons of nickel and then ramping up, you know, as large as, as the resource permits. 
the nice thing is it looks like, you know, we have multiple deposits in the area. So, you know, we have the potential to be ending up being a very, very large resource by the time we're done. And we'll hopefully figure out most of that, that um, by the end of this year. And do you know what your price of nickel you need to basically be in business and to be doing well? Well, so we're working with Senko, who did all our work at um, on Dumont uh, to do the PEA and the feasibility study. Dumont has a seventeen thousand dollar a ton nickel price uh, in the in in uh, you know in the uh, price assumptions. You know, the, again, the metrics. It's you know. Uh, people think low grade must mean high cost, but it you know really doesn't you know Dumont's using Dumont's feasibility study numbers. You know you're looking at just under three dollars a pound for the initial phase of, of cash costs, all in sustaining cash costs, which is the number that actually matters because it's how much cash you have to put out over the life of the project. You know it's three dollars and eighty cents. There's no on you know there is no under high underground sulfide mine in the world that comes close except for maybe one or two mines in Sudbury and, and, and Russia, you know, to that kind of all in sustaining cash cost. So, um, so again, we'll probably, you know, would need, we'll end up needing a, a similar price and, and kick and today at today's price of over $18,000 a ton, we'd be making, you know, even, even much more money because the, the torque to each increment in nickel price on such a massive resource is, is pretty substantial. Just one question to, to Mark's point there, and I think it's important yeah. that people kind of skim over a little bit, is the impact of existing infrastructure. You know, people, when they look at capital costs and they say, oh, I'm comparing against this project, this project, you know, when you already, we have, a, you know, and Mark's in exactly the same boat, we have an all-weather highway located a kilometer south of the pit. We have a rail line on the property um, that runs right along the, the road. We have electrical infrastructure that with enough power to power the entire project, less than eight kilometers away from the project. So when we talk about infrastructure, um, you know, that's why these projects are not just interesting mineral occurrences. Um, you know, they really, it's because you've got all of that already in place. Um, so your capital that you're talking to build the project is really focusing on what you need to get the ore out of the ground to get the nickel out of the ore. Okay, excellent. That is a crucial point. We're not in the Arctic Circle here needing no. to build a all-weather road or whatever you'd call it. Uh, Wes, so when you hear all this, uh, does this just scream opportunity to you, or how does how does your brain process this information? Well, I was, I was actually ju just looking up what, what other metals are in, in both deposits to, to, to answer that question. <laughs> I mean, really, the way, way our model works is, is we we stream the byproducts, right? So so really, I noticed both of them look like they have at least some level of palladium in them, which would be something that that we could stream. So that that would be we. We actually have a palladium stream on the, the Stillwater deposit down in Montana right now, um, and that kind of fits within our business model. And really, the way to look at it is uh, when you, if you are a base metal company, then then generally once you actually get operating, I mean, right right now, I, I don't imagine your your uh, your, your nav ratio is, is all all that great when when you're in that kind of development stage. It, it's a bit rough as you go through, but as as you get into kind of that operation stage, you can get it up to kind of a 0 0.7, 0 0.8, kind of in that range, and and that's pretty good for a, for an operating company. We just to give you the ratio there, we trade at about right now we're very high, we're about 2.1, 2.2 times our our net asset value. So and that's really because the the risk associated with the costs to to operate are not in our portfolio. So so really when when you actually stream a product like we we have a set value that we pay for that so it really removes that risk so it allows investors to 
pay us more for per ounce of precious metal than any other company would get. So that's where the real value add is, is, is that we can actually give you far more when you're financing that project than what you'll get from your investors or really from a bank or from pretty much anyone else. And just because of the nature of the value that's attributed by our investors to our portfolio. So, so I would say, yeah, I mean, I'd have to look at it in a fair bit more detail and see how much is of the, the metal is actually there. But the, really, the, the great part about it as well is that this metal is coming out anyways, right? So it's, it's not something that you're having to do any extra process for generally or, or anything else. It just comes out in the concentrate. And, and that, that way, you're, you're getting some value for something that really, most of the time, the smelters would just be taking from you anyways. So it, it, you can actually have that as you go through and, and I, I mean there's lots of other ways to sort of look at it as well but i would say yeah great opportunities when you see these types of projects particularly the lower grade ones when you bring up constancia it's actually one of our partners in in hud bay down there i've been down to constancia quite a number of times and it, that is a remote place and, and uh, at a very high <laughs> elevation very challenging environment uh, so i i definitely take your your point on on having the infrastructure there and, and that is, is incredibly important because a lot of these south american mines i mean slogo would be another great example you're out in the middle of the brazilian jungle there so you have to bring everything in to, to actually operate these and and they the um the copper mines have been able to do it for years so as nickel becomes a a more valuable commodity here I, I certainly see the opportunity there if i understand you right is wheat and precious metals sort of their bread and butter is the idea that they can take the if there's platinum or palladium as a byproduct you're happy to take that and we'll give you some money up front and it's kind of a, a yeah. that's so i understand exactly. okay excellent go ahead yeah so we give money up front and then there's also a production payment we call it which is usually about 20 percent spot that's that's sort of standard in the in the business right now that we would we would still pay you that kind of 20 percent of spot which the idea of that is to kind of make up the pretty much what it costs to produce that ounce of of, of metal as, as you go through that's that's kind of the, the concept anyways and it varies obviously depending on volume of the metal that's in there and, and all these things but that that's kind of the idea is there's an upfront payment that we would make and then we make a production payment per ounce of, of metal that you go through now we've got a whole bunch of models kind of around how we deal with early deposits as well. Normally we don't get into a project until it has usually a pre-fees on it, but we have a number of companies that we work with right now that are in that kind of more development uh, stage and, and helping them with, and, and usually when you get the stamp of approval from, from a Wheaton, it actually helps you with your investors. You can actually get that because we have a quite a significant due diligence phase that we go through in that. So there, there's a number of different ways you can look at the value add that, that we add to, the, to, the, to a project. And just a very quick question before we get to Roberta, because I want her perspective on this, but just a quick follow-up, because these uh, these streaming companies, I think, are you seeing more pushback? Because we saw the thing with Saul Gold, I don't know if you followed that, and the Franco-Nevada deal, I, and I just see it, and I get the sense that there's a bit more of a pushback on this whole streaming model from the miners' side. Do you have anything to say on that? Or are you noticing that? We we see it definitely, and 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 I think the the, the best way to look at it is, is streams don't work for every mining project. I mean, I mean, really, you, you can't. It, it has to be the right type of project with with the right ratio of metals and, and the the right environment in, in to actually put a stream on on a project. I mean, one of the things is, is, I mean, when we when we invest in a project, we invest for life of mine. So so that that is definitely one of the the criticisms that we often get is that 
we're we're actually buying the exploration upside when when we when we pay for that and and we have things i mean there's drop downs and those types of things that you can negotiate into a contract now and i, and I would say this the streaming business has evolved significantly in the last probably even five years i mean the business itself, it, Wheaton actually really invented the concept of the stream back 16 years ago now in 2004 on Saint when we spun it out of uh, out of Gold Corp. So streaming didn't exist before that. It was really royalties were, were the were the concept before, and then we determined that the stream was actually a more efficient way of accessing capital, both for the, the streamer end and obviously for the, the mining company as well. So over the last 16 years, it's changed dramatically. And we have some of our older streams that we, we've renegotiated them multiple times to make sure that they are right-sized for the, the projects. And particularly as some of these projects get later on in their life. Now, I, I can't speak as, as much for, for Franco or Royal. I mean, I'm obviously very familiar with their business models and, and, and what they do, but the, culturally there's some differences in the way each one of these companies deals with partners. And, and that's something that uh, we prides ourselves on is we really look at companies we work with as partners and, and, and really try to work with them to, to make these projects better. Yeah, and I guess to state the obvious, like if your company goes out of business that you're partnering with, that's bad for business. So exactly, exactly. I mean, it's a very binary. We, we don't have cost exposure, so so there isn't really that. So, but if, if the mine isn't running, then we're not getting metals. So, so it really right. it's a it's an interesting discussion. I have lots of those discussions with our partners. Believe me. <laughs> okay. Very. Thank you, uh, Roberta. So uh, I want to get you in on this. Uh, so. When you hear about these nickel deposits in Ontario and Quebec, these are close to each other. What is your sort of thinking? Again, what's going on in your brain when you like from the environmental sort of side and just from the consultancy side? What's what are your concerns or potential concerns that you could see that people have? Well, I think I mean one of the things that we've noticed, uh, especially over the last five years, and in, in working with mining companies, is that. Um, you know they're they're fighting for investment dollars really right so in new capital projects there's only so much money to go around and and they're needing to figure out how to attract investors that maybe have concerns they didn't have uh 10 15 20 years ago they're also competing with technology companies for investment um, which might be more attractive to younger um younger people getting into investments so but really I see here is this this great opportunity in time where these two sectors are converging now, right? So you get you know you have uh, this this drive, this need for nickel from the technology sector, and and mining is you know absolutely necessary to provide that um, unless you're going to go into a, a recycle model, which I you know right now that costs more than mining new metal out of the ground. So um, I think that really it's it's interesting because these two sectors, one is generally, I would say, lagging in innovation. I, I mean, mining uh, tends to be as much as I'm, um, you know, very pro innovation. I try to encourage it in all the projects I, I work on, at least in some element. Mining has been slow. Technology is on the other end, right? They're leading in innovation. So, again, that's, I think it's another opportunity for as as um tech companies start to get more interested in their supply chain and where these where these metals are coming from maybe there's opportunities there for partnerships um and and if we make those partnerships and keep them in canada and uh really control the supply chain and control um the ethical sourcing of these of these minerals i think really that's 
that's the opportunity here. Of course, there's going to be environmental and social challenges. I think mining has tended to have, obviously, not necessarily the best um, the best track record in terms of, uh, you know, how it deals with um, communities. And, and we're still seeing tailings dam failures uh, today. And, and I think that continues to make it difficult for mining companies to get buy-in and to get that investment money. So, um, interesting thing about these deposits is the nature of the rock, um, which, uh, you know, from what I understand is uh, neutral, neutral rock. It's, it's actually um, carbon sequestering rock. So that, that's a really cool story. And I'd like to, you know, I'm fascinated and like to hear more about that and more about what that means in terms of calculating the carbon footprint and, and, and what time frame, what time frame is that under, right? In terms of like, how do you compare uh, the carbon footprint of, of one of these projects to the need to, you know, uh, cut, create the footprint, right? So the boreal forest in, in Northern Ontario and then Northern Quebec is, is one of the greatest carbon sinks on the planet. So we, so is there's, there's this balance between, uh, extracting minerals, creating a big footprint, though that the tailings and waste rock being carbon sequestering, but what is, how does that compare with, you know, not creating the footprint at all? But I think that's where we really need to consider that the economic benefits to the region and can these projects create a regional uh, shared value um, and considering all the needs of the communities and 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 the mining companies and the, and the need to drive innovation so so I'm I'm really fascinated about it I'm, I'm excited about it so um, but I think there's a lot to consider it sure sounds like it. Yeah, I mean, Robert Friedland, I don't know if you saw the speech that he gave at uh, the opening of AMEBC. I read the article, our summary that we had on the Northern Miner website. And yeah, he was saying how, you know, there will no longer just be a price of gold or of nickel or of silver that the kind of the environmental footprint, so to speak, and who knows, maybe almost like the, maybe the ethical side of it too, and just almost the ESG is going to kind of factor in into your whole kind of uh, how that nickel or metal is priced. Jonna, do you do you want to pick up on this? Like, is, what is tell us about this sequestration thing? Are you guys actually <laughs> yeah. carbon neutral? Is is that rare? Is that a? <laughs> yeah. is that a I, I'm not going to put a, a yeah. I'm not going to sign my name on carbon neutral quite yet. We're actually in the middle of calc uh, doing a pretty. Uh, complete uh, life cycle assessment of the project to, to understand exactly what the footprint is, including, um, you know, not just uh, not just our immediate, but also, you know, just our reagents that come in and the whole the whole suite of, you know, how carbon footprint happens. Uh, but uh, but yeah, no, I mean, our, our tails and our waste rocks sequester carbon. Uh, no question about it. Fact, uh, we have in 2011, uh, we actually started way back before this was like really cool. Um, <laughs> we found some, <laughs> there's some researchers at Laval University uh, doing uh, work on carbon sequestration. Um, I don't know if anybody's ever been to, a, to a Tetford Mines, Quebec, but in Tetford Mines, Quebec, they have the asbestos tailings uh, from the old asbestos mines and they sit, they were, it was a dry process and they dry stack their tails and their waste and it sits there. And actually that's where we did most of our metallurgical development for Dumont um, in terms of all the test work. And so we go there quite regularly and this stuff sits in these mountains and it's cemented and it's cemented in because of this, this carbonation reaction where carbon dioxide in the air passively reacts with the brucite and other chemicals in the rock 
and, and forms a carbonate that is a permanent sequestration in the rock and it makes them like cement. Um, and like, for example, there's dust that, you know, winds that go through Tedford, you never see dust come off these things, right? Like you don't see uh, airborne asbestos fibers in Tedford um, because these things are cemented. And so in about 2011, we took all the tails that we had produced from a mini pilot plant and a few other things, and we put them in a tailings impoundment on the Dumont property. And we also took a pile of waste rock, we blasted the outcrop on the property, and we put a pile of waste rock in another cell. And we had the PhD researchers come and put instruments all through these different piles. And we still have those instruments today. Um, and it's been about nine years. And we don't actively monitor them anymore. Um, but definitely all that data has turned into six or seven papers um, that talks about the ability of this, of our material to sequester carbon. Um, and so, yeah, for sure, it's, um, it's a really interesting property. And one of the things we looked at with our tailings um, pond design that we revamped in 2019 with the, uh, with the assistance of wood uh, was looking at how can we effectively store these uh, to get more exposure to air to actually actively sequester more carbon. Um, because storing them underwater in a tailings pond kind of limits that ability. Um, and because our tailings don't generate acid because they're net neutral, um, we don't have to worry about acid drainage and exposure, exposure to air. So we can take advantage of that, of that benefit for sure. And, and in addition, that exposure to air, really that reaction really does cause cementation. And so you get a strength, um, which, you know, depending on if schools go back and things like that, we have another potential uh, research project on the books, which will look at um, what kind of strength can we expect from some of these tailings um, in terms of mechanical properties for engineering design. On that point, have you also thought about the how you're going to develop the mine and using, say, battery-based yeah. mining machines and sort of like, have you thought about that or is that just a bridge too far at this point? No, I mean, we have a, we do have a complete feasibility study with the mine design. Um, you know, we're using 290 ton trucks. Uh, so, you know, currently, uh, I believe, Ang actually, I was talking with Roberta today. I believe Anglo's testing a hydrogen powered 290 ton truck in South Africa, potentially. I don't quote me on where, um, but I've seen a, a publication on that. Um, but our trucks are, are diesel. However, what we did in the 2019 feasibility study is because we have relatively inexpensive hydropower and we have a lot of it. Um, one of our goals is to electrify as much of the mine as possible. Um, so we actually did put trolley in. So we've got trolley assist in the mine, um, which is on the, the two main ramps that go up to the waste and up to the waste rock dump. Um, and that allowed us in the 2019 feasibility study to eliminate 30% uh, of our diesel consumption. So you're already on the, you're already thinking about it. Oh, for sure. I mean, when you when you just talk and about the project and you look at the and you look at the footprint, I mean, the whole story around nickel and the whole story for battery producers and the end users, the really, you know, the way to the the way to differentiate ourselves um, with projects like mine and Mark's um, is really around that sort of ESG spin and facts, um, you know, compared to say Indonesia. You know, Indonesia is going to supply right. nickel for the world for years and the years. Major and nickel years. No supplier. Question, yeah. No question about it. They have to. The nickel has to come from somewhere, um, but that is going to come at a carbon cost. No question about it. Okay, Mark, would you like to weigh in on this? How's your project as far as this whole carbon neutral thing and carbon sequestration? Uh, how's your project? I, I assume it's similar. Oh, it, no, again, yeah, I mean, these deposits are, are very similar in a lot of ways. So, and I'm very confident about uh, getting to zero. We trademark the terms net zero nickel and net zero cobalt and net zero iron. Um, I, I, I enjoyed that press release, Mark. There you go. <laughs> so, um, no, I mean, at the end of the day, like nickel's dirty secret is that, you know, 
more than 100% of the supply growth has come from Indonesia. And, and you know, as John was just saying, you know, to, to make nickel pig iron, they burn 25 to 30 tons of coal to make one ton of nickel, which generates nearly 90 tons of CO2 for every ton of nickel that gets produced. Even HPAL over there, because all the power comes from coal-fired power plants, um, you know, is still 35 tons of CO2 per ton per ton of nickel. So, you know, if if we if we can get to zero or very very close to zero, you know, that's a massive benefit. Which, you know, not just the EVs. I, you know, the the example I use is, you know, we look back now, you know, 40 years ago, and 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 Inco used to spew four million tons of SO2 a year, and Falconbridge spewed another big chunk, and and you know, a, a river that close to your plant, you know, I'm not saying Inco Falconbridge did this, but a lot of industrial sites. That was great because you just stuck a pipe in there and the river took, you know, took all your, you know, your waste away, you know, and we're horrified about that, you know, but the thing is, you know, there is a generation that's coming through now that sees CO2 as, as, as horrific, you know, as that looked to us, you know, 20 years ago. So, um, you know, so, you know, the CO2 footprint of your projects is, is going to be very, very important. So that, you know, I think is a critical, critical differentiator for our projects and sulfides in general versus, you know, you know, versus ladders. And again, as part of this huge opportunity, like if you draw a big circle, you know, between, you know, the Abitibi and Sudbury, you know, that's one of the few places in the world where you have a lot of nickel, you've got a lot of processing capacity. Unfortunately, it's split between half a dozen different companies. But, you know, again, if we could, and a couple of provinces, you know, if we could get our act together here, again, you know, it's Elon Musk time here. So, you know, we can't study it for five years. Um, we need to, you know, get going and, 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 and get there. And, and there's an opportunity to be had if we can get our, you know, S blank blank together. So. Right. And very quickly, uh, time flies here. Uh, so yeah so and if Friedland's right that means this adds value to your projects to state the obvious now yeah. uh and so you're saying there's smelters in the area right like Valet yeah. and uh, Glencore both have smelters yeah. but it's not that simple right like isn't there I don't know if it was magnesium what was the issue uh what's the dynamic with the surrounding smelters there was underutilized smelter capacity in 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 Sudbury, and we we need some processing capacity. And and again, there's different paths. Our material, you know, one of the things we did was you know just roasting it, and then you can then melt it and use it for stainless steel. So, um, you know, again, it would be great to do that as part of a processing complex that already has roasters and and so on, and acid plants already in place. So. Um, and it, yeah, MGO for certain types of furnaces is not great, but other types of furnaces is not an issue. So, um, and, and, you know, again, we can produce products that, 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 that work and, and you know, it's just a matter of get, getting the mix right. So, um, yeah, no, again, the opportunity is there. We just have to just get it figured out. Okay. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, and we can always come back to that. Now, Wes, uh, we have a call, a question from, uh, uh, I don't know if it's Colin or someone in the audience, and it was ex exactly the question I was going to ask you, which is how much does ESG weigh into your guys's decisions when you're looking at a project? It's it's becoming more and more significant, I would say. I mean, I mean, we're similar to the rest of the industry where where I mean, it's it's been a factor there for us so over the years, and and but but not as much as it's become in the last few. I, I mean, we we now we put out our, our sort of uh, first sustainability report last year, which is a 
kind of interesting to do when, when you don't actually operate the mines. It's a it's an interesting exercise, and, and a lot of um, investment has gone into things like benchmarking and, and how do we actually evaluate. And, and it is a, a significant part of our risk matrix now in, in how we value projects is, is how do those ESG um, factors actually tie in. And I mean, there's so many different ratings agencies out there now and, and how do you tie into these these different ways of looking at things. So we, we focus primarily, I would say, on the on max kind of towards sustainable mining, on the uh, World Gold Council has got some really good stuff in there. Uh, UN actually has some really good stuff that you, you can actually rely on. And we're actually building our own kind of I guess evaluation matrix that we'll use both on our operating assets and and then likely on on the, any new assets that we look at going forward. So I mean the the other one that just in in this discussion has been interesting is this, this concept of providence and wh where where the metal is actually coming from and, and uh, we've been very focused on that on the cobalt side because I mean certainly where where India is is the nickel and it, it's it's the the Congo is, is cobalt so it'd be almost even worse really at the end of the day for for different reasons. But uh, but I, I would absolutely agree. We we certainly have seen it on on the gold side as well. I mean, it, it was successfully implemented in uh, in diamonds a number of years ago. Although it's that's less relevant now than than it has been certainly. But but uh, certainly on the on the gold side it is uh, becoming something more. And uh, and I I certainly agree with uh, what Friedland said there that I I think it's it's going to be something that not not only on kind of the uh, equity investor side, which is really where you're seeing the pressure from right now, I think, and, and this concept of ESG funds. And, and I mean, that's been one of the big reasons that, that we've really focused on it is that, I mean, the largest growing sector in the investment business now is these ESG funds. And if you can actually get into that side of the, uh, the investment market, there, there's a lot of money in, in that that's looking to be placed. And, and mining traditionally is, is not a great kind of candidate for that, but I think we certainly can be. I mean, we've got this ability as an industry to, to innovate and, and to come up with new ways of doing things. And, and a lot of it is, is partnering with these technology companies. I mean, you look at the advent of, I mean, battery powered equipment for underground is, is certainly coming along very, very quickly right now. So and I certainly agree with the Jota that it's the 290 truck is not getting fully uh, <laughs> battery powered anytime soon. That, that, that's not going to happen. But at the same time, I mean, those trucks are running on electric motors and have been running on electric motors for years. So they actually aren't as bad as... I mean, you're not running a mechanical truck on on that. Well, not all of them are anyways. There's still a few that are running that way, but most of them are running on large electric motors now. And there's a lot of technology that's been developed for those trucks that can be taken into other parts of the industry. I and mean, certainly the regeneration that goes back into those, you look at the battery packs that are actually sitting on the deck of those trucks now, it is a, is a really impressive piece of technology in of itself. So the industry has, has lots of potential to, to continue to grow in, in this area and, and uh, I think change our image. I mean, the, the image of a miner is, is still the underground coal miner, right? I mean, that's that's something that we've, we've fought, fought against for years, but it's still the guy down there with the, the headlamp and the pickaxe. And I think we, we've got an opportunity as an industry to really change that view of who we are and, and what we are as, as we're an essential part of any of these green industries i mean wh whether it be nickel or copper or cobalt or any of these none of these green industries work w without having the, the base materials to actually drive into them so it, it's i think it's an exciting time to, to actually be able to evolve into this as, as an industry as, as we go and, and to pick new partners basically as we kind of go through this this next phase 
Yeah, I mean, ultimately, ESG has, like, there's a value. Like, I mean, if Friedland's right, there's a kind of a price tag you can start to attribute to it. This is more than just being a do-gooder at this point. Uh, um, Roberta, are, do you interface with investors at all? Or, you know, yeah. what's yeah, your... Yeah, we spend around the e, uh, ESG finance piece. We do, we do spend some time doing that type of work and, and really making sure that these... Um, metrics say these these aspects of projects that have historically been maybe not measured or difficult to measure that we translate sort of uh, those into quantitative values so that there can be a reasonable assessment of project to project right or company to company because there are uh, you know a so many standards out there now there's you know i think one probably comes online almost every week um so i think it's really important as for these types of projects that and and between the the tech sector and the mining sector they align on okay what standards are we going to use what what is how are we going to compare ourselves to each other and and projects uh like these deposits where they there could be synergies right you really want to take advantage of that in terms of um evaluating the esg aspects of the projects and be able to 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 explain that and articulate that to your investors so yeah, it's it's a big part of our business for sure. It's very interesting. So part of your work then is to help determine the metrics to measure these kind of things. And as you said, like there's kind of a, yeah, to quantify, uh, which is kind yeah. of sounds elementary, but it's probably not as simple as it sounds. It's not as simple as it sounds, that's for sure. So I mean, first of all, you have to decide on, on you know, which standards you're, you're going to be assessing against. And there's some, you know, some, some great global standards. Um, there's, you know, uh, the the Mining Association of Canada. Obviously, there um, there's towards stable mining framework is great. There's a new uh, IRMA, the Initiative for Responsible Mining. So those are those tend tend to be the typical standards. Um, but it's really about digging in farther into these projects and and understanding, you know, where the value is and what they're doing around ESG. I think. I mean, carbon calculating carbon and carbon sequestration and and GHG emissions as is, is, is evolved, right? You have to be very careful and make sure that when you're you know you're seeing press releases from companies and they're you know providing that information, what what are they really measuring there? So you want to make sure that you're you're basically getting uh, reliable information um, about the whole supply chain and, and the life cycle of a project. So I'm sure that Wes. You must look at that for, for for your projects that you're thinking about investing in, and and we do a lot of due diligence work at, at ERM. We we um, basically you know assess projects and and either both on the the acquisition side and and the sales side. So it's a big a big factor. And would you call the what you do sort of like an audit of sorts or or not? <laughs> Yeah, we we do a lot of auditing to make sure that um, companies are um, basically following the things that they say they are uh, to you know as they're in operations, but also in terms of of new projects and making sure that those projects are are meeting the requirements and if they're they're making um, commitments to ESG that they're actually uh, following those. I will say that when I have to I have to mention my enclosure because that's my my job. My <laughs> I, I work I work on enclosure though at the beginning of projects. Um, that's my favorite place to work on my enclosure because of the fact that the greatest opportunity at the beginning of the project to integrate 
the future use of the land into into the life into the life story of the mine, right? And I think that that that's another place where projects can really make some substantial improvements in terms of thinking about mining as a as a temporary use of the land and, and really focusing on the future and the and and the value that could remain from that infrastructure they're creating and, and research opportunities and other economic benefits to the community. So, um, but I will say closure is often not calculated. Uh, the true cost of closure is not calculated and is not considered properly in, in new projects. And so that's one thing I just encourage people to look for is, is how, how companies have, have cost of closure in their, in their value of their project. You know, it, it's funny you mentioned that. I'm hearing that more and more as well. It's just this idea of it's kind of like an exciting new area is mine closure <laughs> and how we deal with mine closure, closing a mine. But it, it kind of makes sense. I mean, you make this kind yeah. of I mean, mining does is an extractive industry. You're kind of making a bit of a mm. mess. You know, it may be one of the most important factors in terms of your the legacy you leave in that area. Yeah. Uh, okay, so there's another topic I want to touch on before we get to the audience, which is the government's role here in terms of fostering these projects, because we saw them recently uh, with First Cobalt in Ontario give, a, it was $5 million from the federal government to get this refinery running, and then $5 million from the provincial government, if memory serves, which seemed like, you know, when you consider it in the context of their budgets, it's nothing. But when you consider the opportunity for Canada, particularly as, as you were saying, John, about this kind of big EV opportunity and, and Mark as well, the this kind of Elon Musk and we got to act now. What do you need from the government to act now? Do you need anything like what, what do you what's your what would you like? What can your <laughs> representative do for you? Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, other than a billion dollars, uh, you know, there, there's the number, but no, that's not that's not happening. Um, no, I mean, the Quebec government has been extremely supportive. The Quebec government was initially, you know, back when Dumont was owned by Royal Nickel, uh, they were on the IPO. They, you know, they 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 are supportive of the project, no question about it, and uh, and they continue to be supportive of the project. Uh, I think that's that's one thing I just want to say. I don't. Um, I don't know where. What does that mean, though? Supportive, like they're helpful um, with paperwork. Financially supportive. Or, uh, finan yeah, okay. Financially supportive in several different ways. Um, for I guess one was uh, we they, we have a royalty on the project. So at one point um, we took a royalty with with them um, with IQ Investimo Quebec, uh, which helped mm -hmm. us out back in 2012, Mark. Yeah, <laughs> 12 or 13, 13, 13. And, uh, and then since then, they've also done, helped us out um, just with some actual, with some test work. They have lots of different programs as part of the Quebec government. And, and we've been able to take advantage of that to um, be able to sort of advance some test work along, along the way. Um, so, so that's been helpful as well. Um, in addition, of course, permitting. And, and, you know, we are fully permitted, both provincially and federally. Um, and we work very closely with the government to make sure that we keep them up to date about where we are. You know, they are a stakeholder in the pro in the project. Um, You're so talking exactly. You're talking about the provincial government, right? Yes, provincial government. Yeah, because they yeah. are stakeholders. Um, and and we keep them updated. We work with them um, with the 2019 feasibility study that we did. Uh, there were some changes that we needed to, you know. So we look or we are looking at modifications um, with with our C of A that was issued, which is sort of the main permit in Quebec. Um, and so, you know, we work through that process with them. 
Okay, excellent. And and just finally, would like I mean, I guess everybody would like free money. Is there stuff you'd like more from them, despite the good uh, results so far? Would you like them to be doing more? Would you like a ten million dollar loan? Like, is that the kind of thing that would really help you no. achieve this? Because it, it sounds to me, it, it sounds to me like you guys are saying there's a window of opportunity here, and this window could close if we don't act fast. So. Is that what you need? Like, what do you need in order to take advantage so that Sudbury and everybody get the most out of this stuff? Could you use more from them? You know, at this point, we're very happy with what the government has provided to date in terms of the project. I don't think, you know, at this point, we need the investment community to really right, decide, right. does it want nickel? Does it want more nickel? And is it willing to support that? You know, the government can't force investment it's, a, it's one of those roles, you know, the like, for example, I don't know, I look back to things like rare earths, where there's been a lot of work on rare earths, there's been a lot of development work on rare earths, especially at the federal level. And yet, you know, these projects which have had huge amounts of money funneled into research and development, you're not seeing any take up by, by industry, nobody's building a rare earths project in Canada. Um, so I think, you know, we need the right market conditions, which I think we have, you know, we're nickel, we're looking at a future deficit um, coming. We're looking at higher prices. We've seen higher prices to date. I think you know we need that climate to to develop these projects. I think the government needs to have clear permitting guidelines. I think they need to have you know the, all of that in place. I don't necessarily think they're they need to artificially create a market for us. I don't think that's their their Like I'm a pretty free market guy, but mm -hmm. what I really thought was interesting about the first cobalt situation is. Because it's just kind of a small loan. They needed something. First Cobalt needed 60 or $70 million to do their thing. But what the CEO, I think Trent Mell was saying, was with that $10 million, I can now go to the investment community and say, hey, the government it wants us to succeed. This is not some you know, pie in the sky, hopeful sales pitch. You know, This is like real. We have the federal. And for him, he was saying, you know, not only will I get you know, better deals, if I need a loan, but I'll probably get more interest and say me, if I was to invest, I'd feel a little bit better if I knew, okay, the government of Canada wants this to work, right? Yeah, no, no, there's a, yeah, Mark, I would say, Mark, Mark, go ahead. No, no, there's, there's a symbolic level of financing, which again, I think that's, that's sort of, it's helpful. It's an endorsement, you know, and then the second piece, I mean, the car plants, you know, got $250 million, um, you know, on the other side of things. So, um, and again, in terms of jobs and value added, I'd probably argue that each of our projects will add add more to the economy um, than 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 a auto assembly. Right, like, you, right. Um, like you, you're not saying you need the money for this project to survive, and I don't want to suggest that. No, but I'm just saying. But if we look at the rare earths example, I mean, half the reason the rare earths left, actually, maybe the full reason the rare earths left North America was because we just said, okay, let the market decide, and then China puts in their cheap rare earths and undercuts everybody and then all our rare earth processing is gone that's what yeah. i'm getting at yeah oh no no that's yeah and then there is a risk you know again i don't think the auto industry is going to depend on china and indonesia for that so you know there there is some opportunity there but that you know that's definitely there and, and again at the end of the day it's about competition for investment dollars from global investors so you know if the indonesian government has been they do provide a pretty comprehensive package for the chinese npi plants that are going there you know if i'm going to invest a similar quantum of capital i just need a competitive tax incentive structure to other jurisdictions which which is what they're doing with the auto sector i mean unfortunately that you know that whole you know uh, the auto industry's got pretty good at sucking out capital from various competing government jurisdictions um, right. but you know i just need to be on the same 
level playing field with all the other jurisdictions around in terms of, you know, various various incentives, various tax incentives. And, and again, the other opportunity here, we have so much hydroelectric power in Northern Quebec and Northern Ontario, you know, that again, can underpin a zero carbon, uh, low carbon economy. And it would be great to use, you know, use that for that purpose, so. Right, so in a sense, what you're saying is, is give me conditions where I can win and I can run with that. Yeah. Is that right? Yep, exactly. That's exactly. Okay, and then you still feel like you can meet these, you know, because it sounds like we have an aggressive program here to get these low-grade nickel operations working, because if you take five or 10 years, you know, maybe you're not going to have that same opportunity. What do you What do yeah. you think about that, Mark? Oh, for sure. You know, and the part, you know, that's in the industry structure right now is you don't have one of the major mining companies where nickel moves the needle for them. It's sort of too small a pie for them to really focus in on it as a core part of their business. And so, you know, as, as a result, you know, again, I'm not going to, you know, I was with Inco, um, you know, hopefully trying to create an Inco Falconbridge merger back in, in 05, 06, which didn't happen, you know, and, and again, you look where the capital investment's gone, you know, over that 15 year time frame. So, the opportunity is there, as I said, unfortunately, it's, it's split among a bunch of parties. Um, and unless somebody steps up to help consolidate the sector, you know, provide the impetus to make it happen, you know, it's sadly, you know, not not going to happen. So um, just to rephrase my question, then. So yeah. what do you need then to, to achieve your goal? I, I just need I just need the basically this the same set of sort of goodies that every other jurisdiction is providing to nickel projects of comparable scale. So do you have everything you need to go? Oh, no, I, I, need, need I need lots of cash. But if they provide <laughs> you need cash, incentives and right. you need investors. Tell everybody they'll give me my permits. Then, then that'll make it much easier to to, uh, to, okay. to get them forward. Yeah. So it's so it's, uh, there's a few things at work here. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, perfect for sure. Thank you once again, CIM Sudbury, for providing us with the event and the audio. It was a lot of fun. Who would have thought low-grade nickel deposits would hold such intrigue? And thank you, dear listener, for joining the program once again. If you want to help out the podcast, leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory. Share it with your friends. And if you know a student, share it with them. Until next week, take care. Take care.